Welcome to this episode of the Medical Affairs Professional Society podcast series, Elevate. I'm your host, Garth Sundem, Communications Director at MAPS, and today we're speaking about the use of real-world evidence to understand and possibly intercede in treatment-resistant depression. Joining us is Carl Marcy, MD, Chief Psychiatrist and Managing Director of the Mental Health and Neuroscience Specialty Area at OM1. This episode is sponsored by OM1, a leading health outcomes and registries company focused on the measurement, comparison, and prediction of treatment outcomes. So first of all, Dr. Marcy, welcome. Thank you, happy to be here. And let's start with the need for real world data or RWE in mental health. Why is RWE so important specifically in mental health? Sure. I mean, I think real-world evidence has a role to play across the entire uh, healthcare spectrum. Uh, but as a psychiatrist, if you would have told me 20 years ago as I was finishing my uh, residency training that 20 years later, uh, I would be practicing pretty much the same way I did then, I would have said, no way. Right? We are learning too much about the brain. We have new medications and new treatments coming all the time. Uh, we're investing heavily in research. It's not possible. Well, I will tell you uh, through my small clinical practice, um, it feels pretty much the same as it did 20 years ago. Oh, no. and, and, and when you compare that to say what's happening in oncology or cardiology, where uh, we're making huge strides in reducing morbidity and mortality, um, it feels like a step backwards because the opposite is happening in mental health, right? Even before the pandemic, but accelerated through the pandemic, you know, we have high single digits, low double digit increases in anxiety, depression, PTSD, ADHD, substance abuse, and sadly, suicide. So, you know, Houston, we have a problem. So I, I think there's a real opportunity to, to change the game. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to talk more about that if you're interested. Well, I am. You know, I know there's no capital A answer to anything we're going to talk about with, with mental health or treatment-resistant depression today. But, you know, in, in your mind is RWE, not the capital A answer, but uh, is, is this a strategy that can make inroads against mental health challenges? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first, first we have to start about you know, talking about what, what, what is, what is the opportunity? So the opportunity yeah. is um, with, with, with the way and the way OM1 is approaching it is we combine healthcare data uh, from a multitude of sources, right? Mm -hmm. Electronic health records, importantly, because that has both structured and importantly, unstructured, you know, clinical notes from clinicians. And we combine that with health claims uh, and pharmaceutical claims, and then other types of data, sometimes social determinants, uh, financial information. Uh, and, and we organize that in the cloud uh, and we mine it for, for insights. That's really the goal. When I came on board, the opportunity was uh, a, a new specialty network in mental health with 3 million patients. So 3 million patients uh, across 9,000 clinicians and 2,500 clinics in all 50 states. It's an enormous data set. And so that's the opportunity. How do we mine that for insights that can help uh, patients with mental health get, get diagnosed sooner uh, and, and get the what we'd like to say the right treatment to the right patient at the right time? Okay, so let's get back later into what we can find from all of this structured and unstructured data. But before we do that, you know, I'd like to learn more about treatment resistant depression specifically. It's almost like we're going to talk about this as a case study for RWE or, or how it can help. So give us give us the background. What do we mean specifically? And maybe what is your experience with treatment resistant depression? 
Yeah, the reason we're talking about it is because it's a very hot topic. Um, and, and it's a hot topic because there's some, some new medications and new treatments coming online uh, mm -hmm. through, you know, the psilocybins. Uh, ketamine has gotten a lot of attention, S-ketamine, uh, mm -hmm. transmetic, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, right? All kinds of opportunities, right? So I, we, we think there's a real um, change, sea change happening uh, in, in depression. Treatment-resistant depression is, is kind of self-explanatory, right? It's patients yeah. with depression who have failed therapeutic interventions uh, more than once. And uh, that, that's sort of what it is. And depending on uh, who you ask or where you look, it's anywhere from five to 50% of depressed patients fall into this category. Now that's a huge range, right? Yeah. You may be asking, you know, Dr. Marcy, why is it such a big range? Dr. Marcy, why is it such a big range? Excellent question. So uh, what we, what, what we, part of the reason is we're not very good as a uh, field in defining what it is, right? Ah, so one of the most common definitions, for example, comes from the FDA, it's known as the regulatory definition. And it's essentially the failure of two antidepressant trials of adequate dose and duration. Now that sounds simple, right? But if you think about it, what is that? What is adequate, right? Is it six weeks? Is it eight weeks? What's an adequate dose? Is it uh, 20 milligrams of Prozac or 60 milligrams of Prozac? And and then what happens in between? When do I know when a patient has stopped one line of therapy and started another? And so what we know from our data and other data is if you just tweak those parameters a little bit, you get a very different population, right? Mm -hmm. So that's not really a, a very good uh, definition. And so we have a problem with defining what it is, which makes it hard to actually address. So in terms of real world evidence, um, you know, it sounds like we have existing drugs. We have our Prozacs of the world. We have a lot in that generation, but then we have a lot of new things coming online. Is RWE most useful, what, in now in comparing the results of the, the existing generation of treatments, or are we starting to look at RWE to evaluate emerging treatments? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I think it's a little bit of all of the above, but, but okay. first we have to sort of get consensus on a definition. Yeah, right? okay. so, so, absolutely. Right. So one of the things we're working really hard with partners uh, is to compare, you know, a, a standard version of the regulatory definition yeah. with um, actual clinical documentation of the phrase treatment resistant depressions by clinicians in the chart. Right. So we they've been labeled. Right. And comparing that to some existing data science models. And we're building our own uh, machine learning and data science model. And when you when you com compare all these three things, you know, there's going to be a lot of learning. Uh, and, and I'm very excited over the next coming weeks and months uh, to share some of those insights. But what I'll tell you is that you, you do not get the same population uh, when, when you compare these things. And so that should inform the discussion about what treatment resistant depression is. Step yeah. one. Step two is then, okay, once you have a, a model and, 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 you know, we're going to make the case that, of course, uh, our uh, artificial intelligence machine learning model is 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 the best um, because it's drawing from so many patients. Uh, you can then apply that to do a number of things. First, find patients who aren't labeled treatment resistant depression and identify them so that they get the treatment they need. Second, we can use that to predict who has at high risk for going on to develop treatment resistant depression. And then thirdly, we can begin to have a conversation about how to optimize treatments. 
boy, I, I was being really myopic in my understanding of RWE in this space. I was thinking, oh, treatments, treatments, treatments. And you're saying that, you know, RWE is A, going to help you define the condition. You know, B, can be predictive for what population is at risk for this condition. And then only C are, are you know, comes my narrow view of using RWE to see how drugs are working. Now, yeah. that's fascinating use. Cool. Well, and let, let's build on that a little bit. How, how yeah. are we able to do that, right? Yeah. And this is uh, not only do we have this massive data set, uh, but we have this this incredible tool. It's called Patient Finder, and mm -hmm. it's an artificial intelligence software tool that identifies unique patterns of information in the health records of known patients with the diagnosis. So we mm -hmm. go in, we identify patients where an expert clinician has said you have treatment-resistant depression. We then build a model based on that, and we look for patterns, and then we can take that and apply the model to any population, patients yeah. who don't have the diagnosis. And if they meet that pattern, either mm -hmm. a little bit, a, a moderate amount, or a lot, that tells us something about who those patients are and, and how they may go on to either respond or not respond uh, to different treatments. Oh, that's interesting. My wife's a psychologist and I see her do a lot of these screenings and um, it's almost like doing, doing a, doing a screening at a, at a mass scale where, where you could look out into a population and mass screen that population for risk factors and, and be predictive in the population that you'd be going to with what further outreach. Well, first of all, you, you said a, a critical word there, which is scale, right? The, the ability to sort of scale um, yeah, yeah, these yeah. kinds of screening tools, because we've digitized so many health records in this country, uh, yeah. which is really how this is possible, right? You know, thanks to uh, a lot of government incentives, uh, intervention and funding, um, yeah. you know, we've essentially digitized our health lives. Um, that allows us to really scale and, and go look for things. Um, but yeah, you can, you can then begin to apply that uh, at, at the individual level. Um, so we can look forward to a day, hopefully in the not so distant future, where you know, Mrs. Jones comes to, to see me and I put Mrs. Jones, a few parameters of Mrs. Jones into a computer, uh, you know, her comorbidities, some of her past treatments, um, maybe, uh, you know, age uh, and some demographic information. And I can compare Mrs. Jones to 100,000, 300,000 patients like her, and it's going to spit out a, a report. Uh, yeah. And that report's going to tell me how likely she is to go on to have treatment-resistant depression or what types of medications she might uh, respond to. Uh, now, there's some work to do to get from here to there, but I think we're on the right path. Okay. So to put a peg in it, one, one use of this approach would be uh, screening at scale. Is that just screening, screening at scale for sure? Okay, cool. And then, and then predicting at scale. And then predicting at scale. <laughs> and then informing at scale, right? Which is what, what are the best treatments? And we can talk about that if you like. Well, yes. Let's, okay. So uh, informing at scale, and we're getting finally into the area that I thought <laughs> was the only use of RWE, but maybe let's go into um, treatment and, you know, in treatment resistant depression seems like a good place to stay, but what are we talking with RWE in treatment for? Sure. So, so now uh, we assume a world where we have a, a, a model that is uh, robust and, yep. and accurate identifying people with treatment resistant depression. The next thing you need to do is have outcomes. Okay. Because we need to know who's responding to what. And, and one of the challenges in uh, real world evidence and real world data uh, is gaps in uh, the data set, right? Because the real world is messy, right? And, and sometimes we don't have a, a PHQ-9, which is a standardized scale for depression commonly used for screening uh, on every patient every month like we would like. 
Uh, so this is the second use of real world data and real world evidence okay. uh, and artificial intelligence where we can apply a similar approach that we did to TRD. But now, uh, instead of looking at just the, the, the structured uh, and uh, health record and the history of that patient, we're going to look at a single encounter and mm-hmm. we're going to use a computer to read the notes from the clinician and we're going to generate a PHQ-9 score, which we call an ePHQ-9 because it's a computerized estimate. Uh, and we can fill in a huge number of gaps with that kind of technology. Okay, t- take me back just as well. So first of all, we're, we're going now into the unstructured data and we're trying to... That's right. And we're trying to say how our patient's doing. Can you remind me? So the uh, the PHQ nine is a standard depression score. So does it say? I mean, improvement on the on the PHQ nine implies that your depression is becoming more managed, and, and you can like correct. Switch. So you're looking for shifts in score over time. That's correct. So the PHQ nine is a nine okay. item scale. That's where the nine okay. comes from, cool. and it's modeled after the Diagnostic Statistical, statistical Manual, okay. uh, and it's well validated. Uh, and it's actually fairly simple. It only takes five or six minutes to complete. That's why it's so widely used. And you get a score of essentially you know zero to twenty seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, the higher that score, the more depressed you are. And okay. So you can create different cutoffs. And imagine if you and if you're doing this sort of say every month or every couple of months, uh, you can see disease progression. Yeah. And and then you can look at our large data set and say, okay, uh, these are the groups of patients who are responding to medication A. Yeah. These are the groups who are responding to medication B. These are uh, let's let's do that same technique and look and see. Well, what do they have in common? What are the what are the signals that we can see in their health record and their data that's going to show us that they're able to respond to that treatment? Huh. And and then we can and do that for medication B and medication C and medication D. And then I can take Mrs. Jones and say, okay, Mrs. Jones, you have a higher probability of responding to medication B yeah. than C or A. I'm going to start with medication B. I can't do that today as a psychiatrist. I have to just sort of use my, you know, my own history and a little bit of guidance from the literature to make a recommendation. Um, I think it would be a tremendous benefit if we could look at a report and say, you know, Mrs. Jones, you've got a 50% uh, or 2x uh, probability of responding to this medication on that one. Would you like to try it? At the beginning of this conversation, you brought up oncology, and it almost seems like Prozac is chemotherapy. And you're talking about going to a like a genomic profiling approach. And, and saying here are the here are the factors of your experience that can predict, you know, almost like a fingerprint, which uh, treatment, even modality or or drug or whatever, is going to best, you know, have the highest likelihood of affecting you. So we're becoming more personalized through this RWE approach. So, so Garth, you're, you're spot on with the fingerprint, um, except where oncology is, has tissue because there's an actual tumor uh, or blood cell line that you can actually extract and put under a microscope and put all kinds of tests. Uh, that's the genomic part. We're using phenomics or phenotypes. Yep. So we're looking at expressions of behavior uh, that patients have that clinicians are capturing either in structured or unstructured data that really reflect who you are. Uh, clinically uh, as a depressed patient. And that's where the fingerprint comes in. Uh, so we're essentially doing the same thing that, that uh, we did in oncology. You're absolutely right. Except instead of with tissue and biomarkers, uh, we're using phenotypic markers and behavioral markers and clinical rating scales uh, to get to the same place. 
Okay. So you said, you know, your PHQ-9 scores, your your inventory, or I'm, I'm sure I'm misusing that word, but anyway, your, your PHQ-9 scores um, uh, can, can imply how depressed you are and change over time can imply, I don't know, getting better or getting worse. Correct. But not everyone has that. So that's a gap, right? That's a gap in the data set. And so we, we hear that term so much, gaps in medical affairs. What, what, what do you mean by that? And how does RWE fill in these gaps? Sure. So, so the gaps are uh, just what it sounds like. They're, they're, it's missing data. Right. Yeah. It's information about a particular patient or group of patients uh, that uh, we wish we had, but we don't for, for some reason. It might be that the data was never collected. Uh, it might be that the data got corrupted uh, or it might be that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, uh, it didn't get into the database. Um, so there's any number of reasons why we might have missing data. Um, and, and the problem with missing data is it creates uh, a statistical challenge. Um, so this is where using the machine learning approach that I was describing earlier, uh, we take a, a group of patients uh, who we have PHQ-9 scores for, we take the encounter date and, uh, and their, their clinical record, their clinician's notes. Now those notes have to be of a certain detail and length, right? They have to be a certain order of complexity. Mm -hmm. um, and then the computer reads them and looks for patterns in the note associated with that encounter and that score. And we do that enough times where we get that fingerprint you were describing earlier. Uh, and then we can apply the same approach to look for patterns in notes that don't have the PHQ-9 and assign an estimated score. And what that allows us to do is literally 10x the number of PHQ-9s we have. So if we have you know, 500,000 PHQ-9s on our uh, 5 to 10 million patients, um, that 500,000 goes to 5 million. And that's a lot of gaps to fill. And that's what allows us to then look at disease progression and change over time and begin to predict who's going to respond to what. Well, so I'm tempted to ask how that works and ask if this requires human coding at the front to train the uh, AI that then goes in and works with this unstructured data. But the second I do that, Dr. Marcy, everyone is going to turn off this podcast. So instead of going uh, smaller, let's go bigger. You know, does this same approach or a similar approach it, or the same model, does this generalize beyond treatment resistant depression? I mean, more outcomes, more data means better outcomes. Does it generalize this approach, the model? Yeah, absolutely. And and we're getting better every time. And we meaning uh, the field, but also uh, here at OM1, um, you know, and if you think about it, our, our broader data set, right, we have 300 million patients. So we have data on, you know, a large majority of, of the country. Um, and we're working in other areas, uh, immunology, cardiometabolic areas. Uh, I happen to be focused on mental health and, and neurology. Um, we started with depression because it's common uh, and, and, you know, in the World Health Organization says, you know, it's the number one uh, worldwide cause of, of uh, disability uh, in the world, right? So, okay, let's start with something that's very common. Uh, we know that depression makes other physical illnesses worse uh, and harder to treat, uh, and it's very expensive, Right. You know, you know, billions and billions of dollars are spent uh, on lost productivity, uh, utilization of healthcare, care, uh, etc. So, um, you know, we, we thought it was a good place to start, but you're absolutely right. Uh, next up, uh, we're looking at models for bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, we're looking at models for schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. uh, we're looking for models for generalized anxiety. 
Uh, we're looking at models for autism, PTSD, Parkinson's, migraines, and the sky's the limit. Uh, so what, we, what we're hoping is we can really get quite good at, at, at building these models. And they take time, right? They don't happen overnight. But, you know, I think the first model we built here probably took on the order of two years. The second one was a year. You know, now we're down to about three months, uh, which isn't bad. Hopefully we can get down to, to three weeks uh, or less. So is it is it define, predict, and then what treat or or recommend treatments? Is that sort of the three step process to these things? Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. So define uh, what what the condition is uh, and model it so that you can find it in those who aren't labeled. So you can mm -hmm. expand the universe and make sure you're not missing anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, you know predict who may have it uh, or who is at high risk so that you can kind of shine a bright light on them and direct them to the right care they need and then help inform what the right treatment for that population is. I think there's a fourth step ultimately when we get really good at this, Garth, um, and that fourth step is prevent, right? Uh -huh. So if, if we can get to the point where we're, these models are robust enough and, and done at scale, uh, you can imagine a world where we can prevent treatment resistance because we're actually identifying you as an adolescent right? Who as prone to depression, because we know adolescents with depression go on to have harder to treat depression as adults. So why wouldn't we do that? Well, I, I think that we should make that the topic for our next podcast, Dr. Marcy, the uh, prevention of treatment resistant depression or, or mental health issues. But for today, let's leave it there. So thank you for joining us. And to learn more about how your organization can partner with OM1, visit OM1.com. That's O-M-1.com. MAPS members, don't forget to subscribe. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Medical Affairs Professional Society podcast series, Elevate.